Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we are walking through a study of the Gospel of Matthew, specifically uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10, as we are talking about what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus in the first century, as he went about, invited those that he encountered to follow him, and, and they did. And we see in that this example of what it looks like for us 2,000 years later to follow Christ. We, we follow Jesus as we worship him. People fell at his feet, and they lifted up his name, and they recognized him as God. They, they followed Jesus into community. Jesus went and hung out with Matthew and his tax collector and sinner friends. Jesus has fellowship with the fallen. He invites us into community, and we saw that. But today, we're going to continue our study of what it looks like to follow Christ by looking specifically at following him onto mission. And we see that in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10, verse 4. But before we look at those verses together today, I want to just draw your attention to a time in history back on May the 26th, 1940. What happened on May 26th, 1940? Well, on May the 26th, 1940, 400,000 troops gathered on the beaches of Dunkirk, France. Now, these troops gathered not to have a party. They gathered because they were in trouble. The German army had surrounded them, had cut off supply lines, and they were facing almost certain destruction. Their only hope was to get out of the continent of Europe and retreat back into England. And so as the prime minister of England at the time, Winston Churchill, saw this situation, he did two things. They ordered a national day of prayer on the 25th of May, 1940. And then they ordered the evacuation of the troops beginning on the 26th. Now, as that call went out, uh, Churchill looked at the 400,000, not only British, but also uh, French and Belgium and Polish forces that were there, He saw them and and he thought at the best case scenario, with all of the boats that they had at their disposal, they might be able to get 45,000 troops off of that beach and back into England. But as Churchill looked at that, and even at the end of day one, when they only got 7,000 men off that beach, uh, Churchill looked and said, it is not good enough. It's not good enough for us to merely get 7,000. It's not good enough for us to merely even get 45,000, the best estimate. Something else needed to be done. And so Churchill issued a call to any seafaring vessel inside of England. And some 700 people answered that call. People who piloted little, little boats, like fishing boats, people that, that had ferries at their disposal, they took off across the English Channel and they arrived at Dunkirk in what is called Dunkirk's Little Navy to try to get the soldiers off of that beach. They call it the miracle of Dunkirk because through their efforts over nine days, 338,000 troops made it off of the beaches of Dunkirk and back to the safety of England. 
all because they looked at it and they said, it's not enough for us to get 7,000. It's not enough for us to get 45. We can do better than that. And so the army of civilians was enlisted. And you can imagine if, if your loved one was on that beach, you would have agreed heartily with Churchill, wouldn't you? Go get them. At whatever disposal, go get them and bring them to safety. Now, this is this amazing story. Uh, it's the subject of uh, one of the summer's best movies, thought of up for, for Oscars and all kinds of things, uh, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Some of you may have seen it, but you know, I tell you that story today, not just to tell you an interesting anecdote from history, but because I believe in that story, there is a picture of something we see in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through chapter 10 and verse 4. Because in those verses, we see Jesus look out across the crowd that gathered around him. And as Jesus looked at that crowd, he said, it's not enough for us just to get the gospel to some. But Jesus had a desire to bring them all home. Jesus knew that his death on the cross would be a sufficient payment for the sins of not only a few, but for all of them. And so Jesus says, let's send the boats. Let's unhook my followers from the harbor and send them across the channel to bring God's children home to the safety of salvation in Christ. And in this call that we see in Matthew 9 through chapter 10, verse 4, what we see is we see a commissioning for you and I to get involved in the greatest rescue operation. Dunkirk, the greatest evacuation in military history. What Jesus has called us to, friends, is something even greater with eternal implications. So let's look at it today and see how we can follow Christ on the mission. So if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 on down through chapter 10 in verse 4. I want to read these verses for us, and then we're going to back up and and unpack them and see three things about the person of Christ that we can understand through these verses. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35, says this. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, in these verses today, friends, we're going to see three things about the person of Christ, and as we follow him on to mission, we must remember these three things. The first thing I want us to see is this. I want us to see the compassion of Christ. I want us to see the compassion of Christ. Friends, if, if you read the Gospels 
and you miss the compassion of Christ, you need to read them again. Because throughout the account of Jesus' life, we see his compassion and his love for the people around him. Now, where does that show up in in this passage? Well, the the love and the compassion that Jesus had for people shows up in what he was doing. In verse 35, Matthew summarizes again the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. Remember, he's basing out of Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, but Jesus didn't stay there. And in verse 35, we get this summary of what Jesus was doing as he was ministering throughout the regions of Galilee. He didn't stay in one spot hoping that some would come find him, but Jesus was an itinerant, moving town to town, village to village. He went to the cities, those places that had walls, these bigger places, and also to the villages, the, the small rural locations. Throughout Galilee in that day, there were, uh, Josephus would tell us, maybe a couple of million people that lived in Galilee in the first century. And Jesus was going town to town, village to village, proclaiming his message to all of them. Well, what was he doing? Well, he was doing really three things. He was expounding the old said he would walk into the synagogues, the places of worship, and he would take the scroll and he would open it up and he would read some verse in Isaiah and he would explain what it meant with, with authority so that people would come to know that he is the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. There was a, a declaration, an expounding of the Old Testament that was happening as Jesus moved about Galilee. But not only that, but he was proclaiming the new. Jesus taught new material, like the Sermon on the Mount, where he would stand on a hillside and he would teach with authority and talk about a new covenant, a new arrangement in the way that God would relate to his people. Jesus expounded the old, he proclaimed the new, but in addition to that, he was also healing the diseased and the afflicted. He was, he was reaching out and he was helping people in all these ways. Now, when you think about the, the presentation of that, it was, was awe-inspiring, People were gathering around him because they'd never seen anyone put that package of things together in this way, and he was just someone who was very intriguing to them. They were following him. B.B. Warfield said this about this season of Jesus' ministry. It says, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. I love that picture. When Jesus came to earth... He brought the trailing clouds of glory with him. And people began to understand that Jesus was special. He was maybe the Messiah. Some were even maybe coming to grips with the fact that he was the Son of God himself. And as Jesus was was doing this ministry, we find out in the next verse what Jesus' motivation was in that ministry. Now, throughout the New Testament, we understand that one of the primary motivations of Jesus was to do the will of the Father. But in verse 36, we get somewhat of the emotional reason for Jesus' ministry. And it had to do with his compassion for the people. Why did he expound the old? Why did he proclaim the new? Why did he heal the distressed and afflicted? Well, because he had compassion on them. Verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He was moved in the interior of his being. His his spirit was stirred for them. Friends, if we ever wanted to imagine a passionless God who could care less about us, it is incompatible with Scripture. What we see in the New Testament is a picture of Jesus who is passionate for us, who is compassionate for us, who loves us and who cares for us. We are created in the image of God and we are someone special to him. Jesus 
looks out upon the crowds and he is moved with compassion. I believe as Jesus looks at us today, he has compassion as well. Now, why does Jesus have compassion? Well, you know, we might imagine that Jesus had compassion because these people had a lot of problems. I mean, have you ever just thought about the people who were gathering around Jesus, the the sick, the demon-possessed? I mean, these are some retractive folks. There's some real problems they have. And we might imagine that, that Jesus was motivated primarily because of the pain of their physical afflictions. And you know what? There, there's some part of that I'm sure that he was. As, as we cannot be in the presence of someone we care about who is struggling physically and not be moved, Jesus no doubt was moved by the things they were struggling with. But in Matthew chapter 9, we get another reason why Jesus was moved to compassion. It had to do with the spiritual condition of the people that had been fostered by poor leadership inside their religious establishments. It says, Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at the way that The people of Israel were being led in their religious leaders, and he understood that they were leading them poorly. The Messiah, the Son of God, was present, and they were arguing with him. That the house was burning down around them as the kingdom of God and its judgment was upon upon them, right knocking at their door, and all the religious leaders could do was try to figure out ways to serve themselves and have other people serve them. They saw Jesus as a threat. Jesus sees this condition and it it makes him move to compassion for the people because they were being led so poorly in their religious establishments. We might think of it this way. If you came upon a building that was burning to the ground and inside it were all kinds of people and there were fire exits that were available for people to get out, but instead of pointing people to those exits, the leaders of those buildings were standing in front of the exits asking the people to get them a cup of water. If you saw that situation unfolding, you would, you would have compassion for the people on the inside because they were being led so poorly in the face of sure calamity. And Jesus, as he looked at the crowd that was surrounded there, he had a very similar feeling. They were being led so poorly. The sin was overwhelming them and nobody was pointing them to the door. They were harassed and they were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus was moved with compassion for them. Friends, I think as Jesus looked out across that crowd, he saw not only those who gathered that day in Galilee, but as the eternal Son of God, I think his vision went beyond that. He saw those in the Gentile nations around. Not only did he he see them, but he, he saw into time, into the future. He saw people like you and me, and he said, you know, there are people in a burning building, and someone needs to point to them the way out. And Jesus has compassion for them, and he has compassion for us. Friends, I want to ask you, do you have compassion for people that don't know Christ? Or are you just irritated by them? Just just think about that. You know, sometimes we look at the world in which we live, and we look at people who don't know Christ, and we just get irritated. 
Why are they doing that? Why do they believe that? Why do they say that? Oh my word, and we wring our hands and we pull our hair and we tisk tisk and we're glad we're part of that generation and not that generation and whatever else that goes on. This is what we do sometimes as it relates to the lost, those without Christ in the world. And yet what does Jesus do? If our primary reaction to the lostness of the world is just to go tisk tisk, to fold our arms, to want to forward the email of the fallenness of the world around us, but we're not moved with compassion, friends, we need to go back and read the New Testament again. As Jesus sees those who are like sheep without a shepherd, as he sees sin run amok in the the lives of those around him, he is moved with compassion for them. Are we moved with compassion, with the love of Christ? Friends, I think that's where our evangelism begins. That's where our mission begins. It begins with the compassion of God. It doesn't begin with us and and our altruism. It begins with the compassion of the Savior for a lost world who looks at them and says it is not good enough that they die, but someone must go and point them to life. The compassion of Christ is where it begins. The second thing we see, though, is this. We see the call of Christ. We see the call of Christ. What does Jesus do? He's motivated. He's leaning in. He has love and compassion for these people. But what does he do? What does he ask those around him to do? What does it say in verse 37? He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's interesting that what Jesus does here is he, he calls on his followers to act, to understand the lostness of the world around them, but not just to understand it intellectually, but to do something. But what's fascinating is he doesn't call them first to go and, and, go and do He calls them first to drop and to pray. He says that this harvest that is out there, these people that might come to faith in Christ, in the face of judgment that they might be saved, Jesus says in in that instance, the very first thing that his followers should do is they should understand that, that that work is God's work. And they should drop to their knees and they should pray that God would send the boats. That people would be unhooked from the harbor and cross the channel to share the grace of God with those in need that they might be saved. Before we go and do, we drop to our knees and we ask God to work and to go and to raise up an army, the little navy of Dunkirk, to go and bring his children home. That's what Jesus says that we're to do. We're to begin with prayer. Now, when I I say that, I want to just just, just acknowledge this. Um, Some of us, we don't like that because we don't like to pray or we're scared to pray or we don't know how to pray and there's some uncomfortableness with that. Some of us don't like it because we're just doers. We want to go and we want to do. But, But one of the wonderful, beautiful things about this is by falling to our knees and beginning first in prayer, what is happening is we are acknowledging that this is God's work. This is God's harvest. These are God's people. We just get to be a part of it. 
Jesus invites us to hit our knees and to pray. And I want you to know that this is not just something that is mentioned once in Scripture and goes away, but there are movements of God all over the world that have begun in prayer. I want to give you one example that takes us back to the 1930s. In the 1930s, there was a woman by the name of Clara Fisher. Now, Clara Fisher was an elderly woman who lived just across the street from Gainesville High School in Gainesville, Texas. And as Clara was was living in her little house there in Gainesville, she would look out the window and she would see high schoolers going and coming from that school. And she was moved with the compassion of Christ for them. She she saw the, the, the lack of whatever in their life. She saw the sin that she could see them, whatever they were saying, whatever they were doing. It isn't interesting, by the way, that we look at our world today and we think, this is the worst that it's ever been. You know, young people, oh no, what's happening? Hey, they were looking out the window in the 30s, the good old days, and they were thinking the same thing. Claire's looking out the window at Gainesville High School saying, oh no, what is happening over there with these kids? But instead of, of seeing that and just judging those children, she had compassion for them, the compassion of Christ. She drops to her knees and she begins to pray and she invites several other elderly women to join her in prayer. Oh Lord, that you would reach those students somehow, that you would raise up someone to go into that school or someone's and to reach them for Christ. Guess what? God answered that prayer. A few years later, after many hours of prayer, there was a young man who was going to Dallas Seminary by the name of Jim Rayburn that God laid on his heart to go into the high school at Gainesville High School in Gainesville, Texas, and bring the gospel with him. He started what was called the Miracle Book Club. It eventually became the Young Life Campaign. And the ministry of Young Life was birthed right there and has gone around the world reaching millions of kids with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where did it begin? Did it begin with Jim Rayburn having a good idea? No, it began with the compassion of Jesus. And then faithful followers like Clara Fisher. I mean, who is the most unlikely person to reach high schoolers? Maybe an older woman living across the street. I, I don't know. But not in the economy of God. She hits her knees, she prays, and the Lord answers. Friends, God wants to start movements around the world. He's at work. He invites us to join him and to join him in prayer. Now, I don't want this just to be some abstract concept, but I want us to actually do it. And so here's what I want us to do. I want you to think just for a moment about a dark corner of the world. It might be a foreign country where the church is is small or non-existent, at least from our perspective and knowledge. It might be not a foreign country. Uh, it might be a, a corner of uh, your world. It might be a team that you're a part of that, that no one seems to know Christ there. It might be, you know, wherever it is that you in your life would say there is some darkness there, domestically, internationally. I want you to think of a location. Can you think of it? The, the darkest place you could imagine. And here's what I want you to do. I want you just to, just to pause, bow your heads, and I want you to take a moment, and I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into that field to bring the good news of Jesus there. So take a moment and just pray. Amen. 
We don't have to wait for these kinds of moments for us to pray, but this is a part of what God has called us to do as we follow Him, that we would be praying for places where there is darkness that God might bring light. We see the compassion of Christ. We see the call of Christ. The third thing we see, though, is this, friends. We see the commissioned of Christ. The commissioned of Christ. What's fascinating is that the very people that Jesus asks to pray, he immediately turns and calls them to a special task. We see in verses 10, the first couple of verses there, we see him calling the 12 disciples to himself. It says, verse 10, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Jesus called to himself these 12. Now, have you ever made that connection before? I mean, these are two passages of Scripture that if you've read the New Testament before, they're probably both familiar. We're familiar with this story of the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And we're familiar with the story of the calling of the 12. But Matthew puts them here right side by side purposefully for us to see that the answer to that prayer is us. Jesus, as we pray for God to work to send someone into the darkness, many times we find that we're the ones that God calls to send. Jesus called the 12 to himself. And when he calls them to himself, he, he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast out demons to heal every disease and affliction. Jesus is is here delegating some of his authority. This had never been done before. Moses had power, but Moses didn't delegate it, not when he was there. Elijah had had power, but Elijah didn't delegate it until he left. He gave the mantle to Elisha at that point. But it's, it's here alone that we see Jesus, while he's still here, delegating authority and power for ministry. Why? Because Jesus wanted to bring home more than just a few. It wasn't good enough to bring home 7,000 or even a best case 45. He wanted to bring home the full 328. And so Jesus delegates authority and he commissions the 12 to go. Now what's interesting is as the the 12 come, he, he brings them first just unto himself. He brings them unto himself. He doesn't invite them to go to a class and he doesn't, invite them to, he just invites them to, to come and be with him. What a beautiful picture that is. I, you know, John MacArthur has said this of this training program that Jesus invited these 12 on. I love this. He says, much can be learned from the classroom, from good books and from personal experience, but spiritual growth comes best from close contact with a holy example, a consistently pure life that is patient, loving, reverent, and that has peace of heart and mind is an unmatched tutor for godly living. To hear a godly person talk to others and to pray to God, to see him act and react, and to feel his heartbeat for the Lord is to be trained in the best of all schools. Now, friends, if you have walked with God for any period of time, you can say a hearty amen to that, can't you? Because no doubt God has worked in your life by putting you in contact with somebody who was walking with God, and as they walked with God, you learned what it meant to walk with God. I mean, some of you have heard me tell these stories before, but when I was in high school, there was a a college student at Oklahoma Wesleyan University who was also the youth pastor at the church where I attended named Dwight Nash, and and I I just couldn't get enough time with Dwight. 
And as I hung out with Dwight, I saw the way that he prayed for those in need, and I saw the way that he comforted others by pointing them to Jesus, and I was so moved by that. I learned what it meant to follow God by being near Dwight. When I was in college, I followed Todd Stuman and Bill Bolt around. These two men were just walking with God, and I saw their heart for the lost that was born out of their compassion of Christ, and I was just moved by those things, and I just wanted to be around those guys. I learned how to follow God by following them. Friends, in, when the 12 are called, guess what? It's, it's the same parade, only they're right behind the grand marshal. I mean, Jesus just calls them and says, hey, follow me to the Father. And they, they, they go, and, and centuries later, millennia later, you and I are asked to do the same thing. We just get to be with him. But what's beautiful is, as, as Jesus gathers them around himself just to be with him, He then sends them on a mission. We see this in the beginning of verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these. On and on. That that word apostle, what does it mean? It means one who is sent. The sent ones. It's a word that was used in other literature of the day of representatives of the king who would go and be his representative in different locations around an empire. As Children, representatives of the king of kings, were called to represent him and to go. And the the twelve were the first, but they are a a picture of the call that goes out to us. The answer to the prayer that they just prayed was them. And friends, when I think about our world and our lives, I want you to know that the, the same thing is happening right now. The same thing is still happening. The the Lord is still at work sending us in this room different places. I look around this room and I see those of you who I know God God has sent you. And you understand this. He has sent you to to Tinker Air Force Base. And you may have a, a secular job that you're working there and you're op, you know, adding to uh, our, our economy and you're helping support our government and our military, but you also know that in that role, you also have the opportunity to shine the light of Christ in that world. And you know that. You've been sent there. Others of you in this room, I, I know you walk into opportunities on coaching teams and you, you realize that coaching that team and being a part of that is, is not something extraneous, but it's right down the middle of what God has sent you into. You might have prayed for that team. Guess what? You might be the answer to that prayer. The Lord is sending you there to shine the light of Christ in that location. But here's the thing. God is doing even more than that. God is involving us, even just little old us in this room. He's involving us in what he is doing around the world. I want to just draw your attention just to, to a few things. You've seen last week, uh, Kevin Bradford, our director of global outreach, was up here on the stage uh, interviewing the Fitzgeralds. And, and as, as Kevin was here and his wife, Becca, 20 years missionaries in Brazil, raising up Brazilians to reach Brazilians and to go to the nations. Kevin was right here as a college student in our church. Somebody was praying for Brazil, and the Lord raised him up and said, Kevin, Becca, you're the ones that I'm sending. Last Sunday, uh, the Fitzgeralds, John and Shannon, were here. 
they, they were a part of our fellowship. But at some point, the Lord raised up their heart and said, you know what, John and Shannon, I, w- I want you to go with the navigators and minister to students in the military around the world. And, and they, they went. I want to hearken your attention back to the beginning of the year. We had Stan and Carolyn Harwood here as a part of our missions week. And once again, they were, they were right here where we were. And no doubt people were praying that God would do something amazing in the Middle East, that he would bring people to himself. And guess what? God answered that prayer by raising up Stan and Carolyn to go to the Middle East and to shine the light of Christ there, to translate the scripture and to plant churches. God is still at work doing this. Next week, we're gonna have the opportunity to hear from JB and Abby Wendell. Abby Wendell, she was Abby Robinson at the time, no relation, though I wish it was, she's a wonderful person, but she was right here in, this, in our room, in this midst. People were praying for East Asia, and God worked within her heart. She raised up from here, and she went there. Friends, guess what? God is still doing it. God is still raising up his followers. I believe that some of us in the room right now won't be here in a while. And that's not because you're going to go home to be with Jesus. All of us will get there eventually. But before we get there, okay, before we get there, I believe God's going to send some of you someplace else to serve him in a different context, in a different city. And some of you, it might be because there's been a a transfer and you end up in in Indiana. And you wonder, how did I end up in Indiana? Well, because the Lord had a spot for you in Indiana. But others, God will raise up and he'll take you to a foreign field with the privilege of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ there. Friends, we're called to understand the compassion of Christ. As we understand the compassion of Christ, we're called to pray for the Lord to raise up people. But we need to know this. As we are praying for those things, the answer to that prayer very well may be you or the person beside you. And you know what? I can only be in one spot. You can only be in one spot. But collectively with the believers throughout this this world and the the ever-growing army that God has, guess what? The coverage is pretty good. We would just listen to the Lord's leading and go and take the good news of Jesus with us. Where is the Lord calling you to serve him next? Friends, we're going to, to wrap up our time of worship today. I'm going to pray, and then after that, we're going to wrap up our time of worship by singing a song. And, and in this song, there's this beautiful lyric that talks about, come on, come on down to the water where all the broken sing. And you know what? That song is probably talking about baptism, But you know what? When we sing it today, I want you to think about Dunkirk. And I want you to think about the Lord calling us down to the harbor, unhitching our boats and asking us to cross the channel to take the good news of Jesus where God's people need it. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship today. We pray that you would guide us now as we respond, not just through song and not just as as a stirring of our emotions, but Father, that we would respond by hitting our knees and praying that you would reach the world and that you would reach the world through us, including the corners that feel the darkest to us. You want the gospel to go there. Father, that you would, would use Wildwood Community Church to that end, even as you have used us in the past, that you would, by your grace and by your mercy, you would continue to use us together with your church universal to take the gospel in Jesus' name.